You know what that one's from. I can't let you get off easy with the uh, Heartbreak Ridge posting this week. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's interesting because that's been my most liked thread, and it's been liked from like everyone from the NAFO types to the military industrial complex types to the people on our side to, to everyone seems to love Heartbreak Ridge. And I had it on like VHS as a kid, and it was a. Uh, I think it was a great movie and it's a great lesson for I think everybody. Yeah, that's a classic uh classic piece of Americana and uh I was happy to see the thread. I I've seen that movie probably like 10 times and never really uh considered the role of the PL in that movie. You know what I mean cuz like Clint Eastwood is such a he kind of like dominates the screen and uh but I mean all your points in it were were all, you know, spot on so that's uh, I saw it. I was like, you know, Voodoo's gonna make me watch this movie. I haven't watched it in probably ten years, and now I, I just know that at some point, <laughs> you know, in the next week or so, I'm just gonna sit down and have to watch yeah. it from start to finish. Yeah, it's kind of funny because someone was pushing me to write it, and I was like, no, that's stupid. Nobody wants to read about Heartbreak Ridge, this like movie from the '80s. Um, but it's a, actually a great segue into some of the things that I think we're gonna talk about today. You know that NCO officer relationship. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's good. And like I said, I'll, I'll have to rewatch. I don't know if uh, I think my, my five year old's probably ready for it if I speed through some of the, the Model A Ford cadence. But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, all the all the Stitch Jones scenes you can fast forward through. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, all right, everyone. So I've got Voodoo here with me, uh, this evening. And a uh, topic for this this episode, we're we're talking about the the war in Ukraine, the conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine, and uh, some of the commentary surrounding uh, the seemingly uh, ill-fated Ukrainian quote counteroffensive uh, that largely has you know just kind of been a dud, uh, and some of the dynamics surrounding that, some of the some of the lead up to the war, and uh, you know kind of maybe a roadmap of how things got to this point. Uh, also looking at a, a lot of, a lot of commentary, a lot of punditry the past month or so has been about uh, Ukraine. Uh, a lot of people saying that they're quote, abandoning NATO tactics as they run into difficulty dealing with the, uh, the improved Russian defensive positions. And um, it's something that kind of irritates me whenever I see people uh, say that they're abandoning NATO tactics or abandoning Western tactics or things like that for a number of reasons, but uh, mainly because it's 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 not anybody's tactic to do some of the things that uh, has come across some of the Telegram channels and it's popped up on Twitter. Uh, so I've got Voodoo on to discuss some of these things. Um, as a lot of you guys know, I'm you know prior infantry, GWAT vet, that type of thing. So I'm at least. Uh, uh, enough of a retard to talk about this a little bit, just, you know, slightly, but Voodoo, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, give everybody whatever you're comfortable with, but, uh, your background on this. Yeah. Um, as if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have hopefully read one of my threads. 
Um, I'm Voodoo6 from Twitter. Um, I have a pretty average military background in my career. Um, but part of that background was a combat arms officer, but also I worked for a bit in Eastern Europe with some of the people that we see on those Telegram channels uh, doing some pretty pretty wild things out there. Um, got some, some years doing that and some time uh, in that region as a whole. Um, so I, by no means am I an expert at Eastern Europe. I'm by no means am I an expert at Russia or the Ukraine. Um, and please don't construe any of this to be a hint that I have some inside information that the rest of you don't have. I just have some experience there. I've done some of these you know, training and preparation and, and strategy and theory things that they're trying to do. Um, and I have a non-biased view of the war as just a military observer. Okay, so one of the things, uh, you know, that I've, I've seen shared, and this is a sentiment that I have as well, is I, I see a lot of this stuff where, uh, you know, you'll see Ukrainians uh, in their part for the counteroffensive. I mean, some of the things that you see, I look at it, I'm like, wow, why would you ever do that? Like, why would you, uh, you know, cross a giant open field with a small group of armor if, you know, uh, there's nowhere to go like there's you know what i mean like it seems just kind of all over the place from uh from a tactical standpoint like it's it's you're obviously at a disadvantage and you're seeing uh situations where like uh armor platoons are effectively being immobilized you know pretty quickly um the russians for their part have been um, underwhelming in their offensive operations uh so you know they were a lot of analysts viewed Russia, uh, kind of anticipated that Russia would, you know, sweep through Ukraine um, in a much more decisive manner than uh, what they've accomplished so far. And uh, so it, it's probably worth discussing what, like, uh, from a military standpoint, like how these armies got to where they're at at this point and, uh, you know, what led up to that point. I mean, wh why, why did the Russian and the Ukrainian armies... Uh, why were they postured? Why were they configured uh, with, with these TTPs and these strategies and things like this going into it? Yeah, and so, of course, I'll start with a history and sort of a theory, but there's a, there's a philosophical and a cultural difference between Eastern and Western armies. And Russia has historically been on the borderline of both, sort of straddling the fences. If you look at russia and ukraine as a, as a whole they're one of the only places in europe that have had to have fight heavily armored teutonic knights and mongols at the same time right and those are two vastly different styles of warfare and russia because of its geographic location has sort of had to try to blend fighting styles throughout its history um and Eastern armies fight a little bit differently. Well, they, they fight a lot differently than Western armies. Western armies are really focused on close combat with professional soldiers. You know, in the U.S. Army, even in the 82nd, they talk about closing with and destroying the enemy, right? And that's not a principle that exists in classical Eastern armies. Eastern armies aren't as disciplined. They don't have this professional NCO corps 
They don't rehearse battle drills until you can do them in your sleep. They're not... It's not to say they're not brave or they're not capable. Their fighting style is just different. Um, and even in, in Western armies, you get this professionalism in a mobilized reserve that you don't see in Eastern armies. If you look at, for example, World War One as a great case study, the German and the French reserve units were vastly better trained than the reserve units of the Tsar. Um, and a good good thing to look at for Americans is look at the American Civil War. The units that showed up to fight in 1861 were comprised of farmers with barely any military experience. And by the time the war's end, those were battle-hardened professional soldiers. But it took them four years to get there. And in some cases, a little bit less. But all the same, if you look at the way battles were conducted at the beginning of the war, it was just amateurish. And there weren't enough professional officers or, you know, sergeants or NCOs to go around. And so you saw battles that were just marked by just gross incompetence on, on both North and South. Um, and that was with an army that didn't have telegram channels or didn't have, you know, live streaming helmet cams from troops in the field. Or, you know, it could only move as fast as you could walk or maybe ride a horse. And so the, the margin for error was so much, you know, it was more forgiving than, than it is today with, with tanks and airplanes and everything. Um, but Russia, and to a large extent the Ukraine, is a product of its history. It's, a, it's an Eastern army that continues to try to do things in the Western style, and it's, it's much to their detriment, because Eastern armies are sort of focused on not maneuver in the way the, the West understands it, but they're focused on large armies, moving masses of troops across great open spaces, and they try to, to hit and run and, and pull you onto their um, prepared positions. And if you, you read about Mongol battles, that's what it was. It was a, a hit, a fainted retreat, and then pulling you right onto the, the teeth of their prepared positions. And that's what you're seeing now in the Russian lines is the Russians had a long time to prepare these defensive positions and the Ukrainians are just, just moving right onto them. And so one of the, the things that you see in the, the Russian army is before the war started, you heard all the, the talk about battalion tactical groups. Like that was the, the military buzzword that you heard all the time, the battalion tactical group. And Russia had all these battalion tactical groups and the media talked about them ad nauseum. But the battalion tactical group was a was a part of the Russian military reforms that started after 2008, after the war in Georgia didn't go exactly like Russia had planned. And that was just a, a most recent example in a long string of sort of Russian wars that didn't go as planned. You had Afghanistan and, and Chechnya the first time and then Georgia, and then even more, more recently, um, the activities in, uh, in Syria and Kasham where uh, Wagner touched an American unit and it didn't go so well for, for Wagner. And so Russia really tried to look at its army and sort of redesign it, essentially. And Russia focused on creating these, these modular battalion tactical groups. And 
it's sort of like the American Brigade combat teams, but just a smaller version, um, more mobile, more modular that they could deploy to fight these sort of smaller wars that, that Russia didn't plan to fight. But as they look back through their history, those are the wars that Russia was fighting, these smaller, lower intensity conflicts. Um, they even tried to create a professional NCO corps, which to American listeners is, is kind of a wild thing to hear, but um, an Eastern Sergeant Major, a Soviet style Sergeant Major, his goal was to become a Lieutenant, right? It was one linear career path from private to, to general. It wasn't two parallel tracks. So your NCO Corps and the Soviet army systems weren't your experienced grizzled gunny highways. They were 24, 25, and they wanted to become lieutenants. And that sort of degraded the discipline, um, at least the tactical discipline in the Russian army. The Russian army is, especially the VDV, is famed for its brutality and, and internal discipline, but that didn't translate to to battlefield discipline and some of the other reforms and the attempt to be more modular really hamstrung the Russian army at the beginning of the war. Um, one of the classic examples, and everyone talked about the VDV, the, the Russian airborne units at the beginning of the war, um, but they didn't function like American airborne units. Russia really tried to mechanize its airborne units. Um, using BMDs and, and other um, armored vehicles to try to, to make that airborne unit more more mobile. But what it resulted in is a, an overstress on Russia's air mobility and airlift command. So it would take essentially five IL-76 transport planes to, to transport one company of VDV. And if you look at the American airborne units, that's just not gonna, not gonna fly. Um, also, it, it left Russia undermanned in critical spots. So a, a VDV um, infantry company had essentially like 46 dismounted troops. And you think, okay, 46 troops is kind of a lot. But when you look at an American mechanized infantry company, it's got 84. And so it's twice the size, twice as effective. And if you look at a short sort of low intensity conflict, 48, 46 is probably enough. But if you look at a sustained ground combat, you lose troops pretty quickly, you gotta do maintenance on vehicles, you gotta do all these different tasks so that it really stretches what Russia in the Soviet style had really relied on is that, that human capital, that human machine. Um, and so the, the attempt, especially on Russia's part to adopt sort of a more Western focused army really led to their downfall um, and we'll talk about, I'm sure we'll talk about the first couple of weeks of the war later on, but, but that's sort of the precursor. Um, and Russia, uh, sorry, Ukraine's history with NATO is sort of the same. Um, if you've known anything about Ukraine from the 2000s, 2010s, it was sort of this, this battle politically between the Western half of Ukraine, which wanted to, to favor the EU more and the Eastern half, which wanted to favor Russia more. And so it was this like, constant sign curve of like what kind of army what kind of government what do we want to do and so as other eastern european and former soviet um, armies were sort of transitioning into a more professional western nato style army uh, creating a professional nco corps creating professional you know training 
academies and creating more of a, an integrated Western style army, Ukraine really lagged behind in that. It was only in, in recent years that they, they really tried to, to pick up on that. But, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure it was just far too late for Ukraine to, to catch up and, and close that gap. Yeah, that makes sense, especially because, uh, like you mentioned, I mean, there's cultural uh, distinctions between the way that uh, Western armies and Eastern armies fight. And uh, a lot of the, the core competencies of uh, the United States military, uh, you know, our, our strategic and tactical approach to these types of things um, is, is different from culturally, like you mentioned, what the, what the Russians and Ukrainians are doing. Um, that's interesting about the VDV. I didn't realize that they weren't jumping uh, anywhere near as many as many packs off one, uh, you know, transport aircraft. Uh, you, you said it was forty-two coming off of an IL seventy-six. Right? No, there were uh, there. It takes five IL seventy-sixes to transport one company, and then that one company's got forty-six dismounts for their for their vehicles. Yeah, I mean, for listeners, that's. Um, I mean, a, a rifle company is about 120, 130 guys. Uh, and that's, you know, excluding any equipment, that's just two C-17s. That's, that's you know, you get about 100 jumpers off a of C-17. And so that's, you know, a very big, very big split there. And it did not perform well. Uh, you know, I mean, we can look at that a little later on, but that's something that, you know, it's a little bit of a point of contention amongst uh, analysts and armchair, armchair generals like myself is that uh, the VDV's assault at Hostomel was, you know, I mean, what, what's your take on that? I, I don't think that it was, you know, it, it, I view it as like a big failed attempt, like a big swing and a miss that uh, it would probably be a much different conversation if they had been successful. I mean, am I off yeah, base on I that? Think no, and I think that conversation comes down to how realistic you are about the things that, in the way the world works. So it's entirely possible that the, the operation at Hostomel and the other um, Russian advances towards Kiev in the, in the beginning of the war weren't as successful as Russia had hoped and simultaneously not as disastrous as the Western media portrayed them. Um, so I think that the truth is somewhere in the middle, uh, but to, to look at that and say, oh, this was a feint, that's, that just doesn't make any sense. This was a, a two pronged attack towards the capital of the enemy country where if you capture Kiev, you have essentially cut off supplies from the West reaching the Eastern part of the country. Um, you've decapitated the, the Ukrainian government you've delegitimized their ability to rule their own country. Um, and it's a, it's a typical Russian tactic to bring in airborne troops, secure a, a foothold, and then bringing ground troops behind that. That is Russia 101. Um, but if you look at the, the beginning weeks of the war, it was Russia trying to do um, a NATO tactic, essentially, an, an American... Um, deep penetration where Russia would would run armored columns ahead of the support in order to try to collapse Ukrainian defenses, um, somewhat like a blitzkrieg. Um, I know uh, historians and people who love 
you know, Germany will, will look at that and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's terrible blitzkrieg. But at the same time, it's, Ukraine isn't France, right? It's not Poland. It's a big country. Um, it takes some time. But Russia wasn't able to sustain its troops far from its base of supply. And when you look at the, the Western way of war, it's almost entirely focused on logistics and supply, um, even sometimes to the detriment of, of combat capacity, because Americans, and to some extension NATO, view the ability to, to keep troops sustained and at close to maximum fighting capacity as the, the primacy of their strategy, right? So you've got to get guys fuel, you've got to get guys ammo, you've got to evacuate you know, injured or, or dead. Um, and that's part of the NATO battle strategy. And Russia tried to do this deep penetration, this quick, decisive victory, because that's also part of Russia's sort of larger strategic picture. And so when, when Russia looked at how do we want to fight a conventional war, their view and their belief was that a war with NATO was always going to turn nuclear quickly. And so their only hope was to win a decisive victory as early in the war as possible to try to end the war as quickly as possible. And it's what they tried to do in Ukraine with this two-pronged assault on Kyiv that failed, but they it fits right into their strategy of let's try to to go for this knockout blow right up front. And they just weren't able to sustain that drive. And to be fair, it's very difficult. There's a huge gap between the ability to fight a defensive battle and the ability to fight an offensive battle. Sustaining tanks and troops and all the different you know, classes of supply that infantrymen hate so much is incredibly difficult when your frontline trace is moving, you're advancing through hostile territory, you've got all sorts of different types of, of ammo and fuel and all sorts of stuff to sustain. It's not easy. It's it's far easier. And I think Ukraine proved this at the beginning of the war to sit back, dig in, and, and shoot some of the new ATGMs or man pads at the advancing Russians than it is to try to maneuver um, and sustain those maneuver elements on the move. And, and historically, you know, as long as your infantrymen had a, a day or two of food and have bullets to fight a couple battles, you could move anywhere you wanted, right? But, but now you've got fuel problems, you've got spare parts problems, you know, mechanized vehicles break down, you gotta repair them, you gotta tow them, you gotta do all this stuff with them. It's not as easy as it once was to maneuver an army. And you'd think it would be easier because everything's mechanized, but that just means it goes faster. It doesn't mean it's easier, and it's actually harder now um, in the modern era to maneuver armies over large distances under fire than it was back in the day. And so that's sort of what we saw at the beginning of the war and, and where Ukraine built up this, this pool of, of goodwill, this like happy times feeling. Um, and if you think back to the successes that people perceive of the Ukrainians, they were all on the defensive. You know, a lot of people, including me, had a more pessimistic view of the Ukrainians' ability to defend their country. Um, full disclosure, my belief was that Russia would take everything east of the Dnieper River um, and everything west of that would remain Ukraine because Russia loves their buffers, right? And so Russia wanted to create this buffer, but to their credit, the Ukrainians dug in and 
withstood the, the best offensive the Russians had put together for 70, 80 years, and they, they pushed it back. And now we're sort of on the flip side of that coin of the Ukrainians trying to push against the Russian defense, like defensive positions. And as you said before, it's not going well for the Ukrainians. Right. And, uh, okay, so let's talk about NATO for a moment because this is, uh, you know, this is what, what people are saying is faulty. They're saying that, the, you know, NATO tactics are not going to, not going to get the offensive, uh, you know, the results that people want to see. This isn't going to be an ROI for NATO countries or Atlanticism. And, um, you know, Ukraine is kind of, kind of teetering a little bit. Uh, what's, when people say NATO tactics, what are they, what are they referring to? I mean, what, what, what makes NATO the, the, you know, the gold standard? What is it that NATO does, uh, centrally that these Eastern armies cannot or do not do? Yeah. And not surprisingly to anyone, I'm going to start off with a little bit of history, but NATO was put together to protect Western Europe from a Soviet advance. The irony was the Soviets were also preparing to defend themselves against the NATO advance. So for the, almost the entirety of the Cold War, you had these two armies terrified the other was going to invade them, and so they prepared to fight a defensive battle. Um, but NATO was designed to fight the Soviet advance on the North German plain and the Fulda Gap that that area between East and West Germany where the, the Soviet invasion was certainly going to come. But NATO was designed and NATO tactics sort of evolved around using superior technology against superior numbers. And that was certainly the, the macro NATO tactic that they had was we're going to use better technology to, to mute your massive sized army that's rolling towards us. Um, and everywhere you've seen NATO or U.S. equipment specifically fighting Soviet-style equipment, the, the Western equipment has always prevailed, um, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's, you know, other places in the world that have had Western equipment against Soviet stuff. The, the Western equipment is... is always better it's always superior but the the gamble that nato was making was we need disciplined and professional troops to use that equipment in the right way give ground against the soviet army but to bleed the soviet army to the point where it lengthened its supply lines because nato wasn't stupid it knew the Soviet Union couldn't sustain large-scale offenses over great distances, right? And almost always an attack that isn't overwhelmingly successful always invites a counterattack um, because you're tired. At the end of a, a sustained offensive, you're exhausted, your supply lines are stretched and straining and maybe broken, and you're at your weakest point. So that was NATO's strategy was to use this full spectrum air land everything else component to sort of bleed out the soviet strength and then launch a counterattack if it had to and this is exactly how 
uh, Cold War era NATO generals trained themselves. They trained in logistics and how do you get troops from the continental United States into Germany? How do you meet them up with their equipment in the apps fleets? You know, they had exercises like Reforger and things. All of those exercises were designed to, to match professional, trained, ready troops with equipment and get them in the fight against a Soviet invasion. And it took decades for the United States and NATO to perfect that process. You know, and we look at the American army now, and most of the grievances that people have with the American army are almost exclusively at sort of the senior level, the colonels and above, and the general officers especially, you can't take an American infantry company out of the 82nd, and you can't pick a company from any other army in the world and tell me that company is better than the company from the 82nd. It's just not a, not a thing, right? So the NATO tactics are really focused on logistics. They're focused on combined arms and coordinating, you know, combat air support, coordinating combat air patrols. How do you use your air force strategically? How do you knock out bridges? How do you knock out supply chains? How do you, how do you do all of these things at the same time? It's really the hardest type of warfare there is because it's, it's not just small units fighting one another on the battlefield. It's coordinating all of these multifaceted things that are all moving very quickly all at the same time it's you know repetition and preparation of battle drills and you look at you know you talked about ukrainian troops running through minefields nato has a has a battle drill for that the united states has a battle drill for that the the sosra approach and it's these things that you practice and you train and you rehearse for years and you talked at the beginning about you know, the professional NCO, and that professional NCO, their job is to prepare those young infantrymen in those battle drills. So it's like a like a second religion to them. And you, in the old days, there was the Field Manual 7-8, which was the infantry squad and platoon tactics. And you memorized those battle drills. You knew what they were. You know, you could enter and clear a trench. You could enter and clear a a room you could do a hasty ambush you could do all these things because that was what was trained into you over and over again and that's the difference between nato tactics and what you're seeing from the ukrainians and to to some extent the russians is you can't can't microwave this you can't go to some you know person on the street and hand them you know beethoven and say okay well why can't you play like beethoven Right, and to be sure, in this analogy, the Ukrainians are the people on the street and they're just gonna say, well, if you gave me Beethoven's cello, now I could play just as well as Beethoven. But we know that's a lie and we know that they can't just shake and bake an army and fighting in the, the Western style, which is by far the hardest style, it's just not gonna work. And it's, it's not a thing that's even reasonable to expect out of them. And you say, oh, well, it's a failure on the Ukrainian part we trained the Afghan army for two decades to try to fight like us. And they collapsed in what, like six hours. They were, didn't stand a chance because we didn't train them from a cultural and a foundational standpoint and say, here's 
how you have to be as a society to sustain warriors like this. It's not just learning and saying, okay, I can do these tasks or whatever. It is core deep in your bones. This is how we fight wars as a people. Um, and Victor Davis Hanson is a big proponent of this. And if you've not read any of his, his work, I would recommend it. Um, but the Western style of war is foundational to the way we are as a people. And it's not something that giving a bunch of conscripts in, in this conscript Ukrainian army a three-week introduction on how to use a javelin can, can replicate. It's just not reasonable to expect that out of the Ukrainians. Yeah, that seems to be um, like an X factor that's missing from uh, from the Ukrainians. And obviously, I think the cello analogy is good. Uh, you know, any, anyone can buy a cello and anyone can learn to read sheet music, um, but not everyone is going to become like a, a, you know, a classical master. Uh, and, you know, there's probably people listening to this saying like, well, you know, you guys are full of shit because Iraq and Afghanistan didn't exactly... Uh, you know, pan out uh, terrifically. My counter with that is that, of course, uh, you know, those people are correct, but at a uh, end result strategic level. I mean, the, the U.S. military uh, largely uh, had, had no, it was never in jeopardy, uh, the concepts of like uh, freedom of maneuver or sustaining, uh, you know, forces. Uh, things like this. I mean, the, the U.S. went wherever uh, we wanted to in Iraq, pretty much wherever we wanted to, Afghanistan, um, whenever we wanted to go to those places. And, uh, you know, at, at the, the from the, the general officers, like you mentioned, and at the political level, uh, there was not the, the will or the competence or the fidelity, uh, really just the overall heart to, to do what it... it takes to even uh not just win but even set a, a, a win condition you know because uh, th those things were largely lacking especially in afghanistan for the latter half of the war um but at the, the tactical level i mean the the army and the marines and the air force could go wherever we wanted to go and uh kind of go stay stay there as long as we wanted to and uh you know these countries of course collapsed uh particularly i mean afghanistan the most recent and the greater of the two in terms of examples of this um, I mean, as, as soon as, you know, the last, last rifle company pulled out, it, it, you know, it, it was all over in a day or two. Uh, just like you said, we, we spent, you know, uh, forever training the, the Afghan National Army and uh, they didn't have, uh, you know, the willingness to, to act as a professional military. This was always a big complaint of not just mine, but anyone who was in in the infantry or combat arms um, in Iraq, I mean, you, it, it was like pulling teeth working with the IPs, um, you know, because they, it's a clusterfuck. They, they don't know what they're doing. They don't have any discipline. They don't have any real uh, heart for the fight, uh, which a lot of, you know, a lot of young men in the West do. I think, uh, you know, like you said, it's a cultural thing. Uh, you know, boys in the West grow up uh, curious about military history and, you know, uh, playing strategy games and sports and uh, really kind of developing like full military autism. And as a result, you know, our, our military can uh, can sustain uh, protracted engagements at high levels of, uh, you know, readiness and uh, maintenance and, you know, 
uh, troop levels for long periods of time. I don't know what specifically it is that stops the Ukrainians or, or anyone else really um, from, you know, being able to do this. But like you said, you, you can't just package it up and microwave it and expect somebody else um, to figure this out because that's not, that's not how these things work. Uh, you know, and Ukraine is seeing that. I mean, I, I think, do you think that it's smart for them to jettison these concepts and embrace uh, something that's more, uh, something they're more accustomed to? Or, I mean, do you, do you view this for the Ukrainians? Do you view this as a, a good or a bad choice to just say, you know what, we're going to do it our own way uh, because this isn't working? Or do you think they should uh, maybe reassess and, you know, reinvest in uh, like Western tactics? Well, and so, I mean, this has been a, a question that has existed since Western armies tried to train Eastern armies to fight. Um, how do you incorporate their natural tendencies into what you need them to do to win wars? And you saw it in, in South Vietnam. We trained them for a long time and they ended up collapsing under the Northern assault. But you also saw it in you know the, the British Empire of the British army trying to train Egyptians to fight like a British rifle regiment. And it is not a thing that they could do. However, one of my, my favorite Roger Kipling poems is called The Pharaoh and the Sergeant. And if you don't, never read it, you really should. It's a great understanding of, of how this can be done successfully because the, the British are one of the very few cultures that have been able to take foreign troops and foreign cultures and to make them into to real soldiers. And the way they did it was just saying, I don't care about your culture. I, your culture is not good. Um, sure, there's, there's cool things and we all like naan and we all like palal and we all like eating in shawarma, but you can't fight. And I know you can't fight because I'm here. Um, and so we're going to train you from square one of how to be a man. We're going to teach you discipline. We're going to teach all these things. And Ukraine isn't at that point yet. And so when you look at what Ukraine has on the table as options, their only hope to recapture some of that land that Russia had taken was essentially this offensive. And this offensive, you know, they're, they're looking, okay, now we want F-16s. The time for F-16s was before the offensive started, right? You saw videos of, of Russian attack helicopters just cutting up, you know, Ukrainian armored columns because there's no combat air support. There's no close air support. There's no close combat air patrol to shoot down any sort of Russian aircraft out there. But what about you know, the ghost at, of Kiev? Yeah, well, he was cool, and I played a video game once and they had a main character in it and he was just as real as a ghost of Kiev, man. Like, yeah, and that's exactly the the thing is the thing that we're looking at now is both armies reverting to their programming, right? They both want to sit back. They both want to sit behind defensive positions and just poke and pick at each other. Right? Just like old Eastern armies wanted to do, they wanted to just poke until they found a weakness. And Russia's built up this in incredibly strong defensive positions. And Ukraine's not going to get through them 
the way that they've been been trying to. And they've used up a lot of their Western equipment, and they've proven themselves un, unworthy of the task before them. And that's not a knock on Ukraine. You know, I don't, I don't want to make this sound like I'm anti-Ukraine. It's incredibly hard. It's the hardest type of warfare to attack built-up, prepared defensive positions of an arguably superior army. If you look at, you know, the, the worst parts of World War II, at least for the Americans, it was on the Siegfried Line and in the Hurtgen Forest and trying to, to push through prepared German positions. And the Pacific, you know, the middle to the end of the war was all like that, you know, attacking prepared and defended Japanese positions and the, the casualties were horrific and the United States had a vast material and vast personnel advantage over both Japan and Russia and Ukraine doesn't enjoy an advantage in either one of those two categories against Russia and so what I think is, is bound to happen is they'll say okay we're, we're abandoning NATO tactics we're just going to sit back and and use drones to drop a grenade on one Russian here or there, or use HIMARS to hit a Ural truck carrying food, you know, a really great use of that technology. Um, but there's not going to be a big decisive battle if neither side wants to come out of that trench and try to, to take the fight to the enemy. And in the defense of both of those armies, it's clearly very dangerous to come out of your trench in this, this war right now. Uh, the life expectancy doesn't seem to be very long of an armored column moving through a minefield. And so uh, part of me says I don't, I don't blame them. They're both largely conscripted, unprofessional armies, and it's just not reasonable to, to ask them to act like 1st Armored Division. And so it's, uh, I think the, the war is going to look a lot like it does now, with Russia having, having created its buffer, having created its land bridge to the Crimea. And I might be totally wrong, but I don't see, looking at the both armies, that you're going to have this sort of decisive breakthrough um, of the Ukrainians through these Russian lines. I just, I just don't see it. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, one aspect that you know, I want to touch on, like you, you mentioned multi-spectrum uh, warfare earlier and, uh, you know, obviously the logistical advantage, the technological advantage, uh, the training advantage, the cultural advantage, all, all these things uh, work in favor of uh, Western militaries, like the, like the U.S. military. Uh, and a lot of the effectiveness of the Ukrainian defensive operations, I mean, Obviously, they're, they're playing defense and they're defending um, their home territory. So there's some uh, kind of inherent advantage in that way. Uh, and Russia did not have a, a core competency for what they were striving to do at the onset of the war. But it seems like uh, Western armies that enjoy... Um, like like the, the Russian army, I mean, they lost, it seems like, a number of... Uh, high-ranking officers due to just poor, uh, like, OPSEC, even, like, basic stuff, like talking on uh, cell phones or, or having radio systems that aren't encrypted. 
uh, not being able as a, as an organization to fight at night effectively. Um, and Ukraine, I think partly through merit of the equipment they've been, been given, uh, you know, or the, you know, the, the intelligence resources uh, that they had access to, uh, helped kind of skew that defense. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, again, this is an amateur opinion, but I don't know that Ukraine would have been able to mount anywhere near the type of defense that they did were it not for, uh, you know, wh whatever juju that the, the NSA and the DIA and these things were, were doing, um, and the information that we were feeding the Ukrainians and their, you know, large supply of, um, you know, shoulder-fired weapon systems, things like that. I mean, these are, uh, these are. If you don't have a, a peer like a counterpart to this, it doesn't seem to me reasonable to to assume that you could best that, right? I mean, if if everything that you say on the radio is heard in near real time and you know uh, translated, and nothing that your enemy says is you know done the same, I mean, it's difficult to fight that. Same with uh, shoulder-fired weapons or any. You know, the, the, the AT4s that Ukraine is using, uh, as far as like, uh, you know, weapons of war go, they cost virtually nothing. Uh, they're like a few thousand dollars per unit, if that. And, you know, uh, they can disable, uh, you know, a, a number of the, the Russian armored vehicles uh, pretty easily. And so there's an asymmetry there where like one guy who's 180 pounds with a $2,000, you know, shoulder-fired rocket... Uh, can disable a tank that weighs several tons and costs a million dollars and has a crew of, you know, two or three guys in it. Uh, you know, and these are things that cannot be easily salvaged. I mean, what role, I mean, it, it, am I overstating that? Like, it, it feels to me like no, but I'm just kind of talking out of my ass. I mean, what what do you think, like, how big of a deal is this type of stuff between radios, night vision, and uh, like shoulder-fired uh, weapon systems, uh, how big of a factor is that? I mean, it's it's uncalculable how much of an advantage that has given the Ukrainians. Um, and it, it really comes down to, to two things. One, I mean, we can say it's not a secret, it's been reported open source now, that the U.S. is, is actively helping Ukrainians target Russian individual Russian units. Right, individual high-value targets through the the sensor-to-shooter process that the the Americans are trying to perfect. Um, and to be honest, the Americans are getting a huge benefit from that using Ukraine, as a lot of big countries have used foreign wars before, as a test bed for their own processes. Right. Um, Germany used Spain before World War II to perfect some of its weapons, but the, the U.S. is really looking at this as a, a test bed for some of its autonomous targeting and its sort of autonomous deconfliction. Um, certainly, the signals intercepts early in the war led to a lot of Russian officers getting killed, and a lot of those officers were killed partly because their inability to do any sort of you know, communications that were encrypted or any sort of communications that were not essentially open, open source, but also sort of the way the, the Russian army works where that, that general has to be as close to the troops as he can because he can't trust an unprofessional NCO corps to lead his troops, right? And so 
it's a double-edged sword, he's got to be closer to the troops to make sure they're doing the right thing. Um, but also their inability to do even the, the most basic of, of soldier tasks gets them all, all killed in the end. Um, but without Western weapons, the Ukraine may have been able to stop the initial push in, in Kyiv, but there, there's nobody who can make the argument that they would still be fighting or an effective resistance in anything other than a sort of an insurgency without that just massive influx of Western weapons. There's, there's no way to make that argument. You know, almost every weapon you see now is either a Western imported weapon since the war started or a captured Russian weapon. There's, there's really very minimal things that you see out there that are organically Ukrainian from before the war. Do you think that, um, like the the financial uh, leverage that the the West and the U.S. has tried to to use against Russia is is kind of a controversial uh, approach because there, there's a lot of people who say, well, this it really hasn't phased Russia much, right? Like Russia is resource rich, and they're industrialized, and the West relies on Russia, and in some ways, uh, not so much the United States, but uh, Germany, Baltic states, uh, you're kind of biting the hand that feeds when uh, you stop getting, you know, gas through like the Nord Stream pipelines and things like that, uh, or like you know, just wheat exports, uh, that type of thing. Um, but part of this, like, you know, multi-spectrum dominance for Western militaries, uh, like the U.S. dollar is part of that, right? Like, if if uh, as the saying goes, if professionals worry about logistics. Uh, while amateurs worry about tactics, uh, you know, that effective rifle platoon from the 82nd or that effective brigade combat team uh, from, you know, whatever, 101st or wherever, uh, part of what makes them effective, especially logistically, is knowing that, you know, the U.S. dollar has kind of a, uh, the, is, you know, the, the global reserve currency. Uh, and so if we have things that come from outside of the U.S. that we need to source, uh, our currency, uh, largely, at least, uh, you know, before this war started and, and, you know, still today, but, you know, that's the future on that is a little bit in doubt. That's another topic. Um, like our currency, there's no question that like the U.S. dollar would be good, whereas uh, Russia right now does, does not fully enjoy that. Uh, I mean, I think the financial side of it, you know, could be a factor in this multi, multi-spectral warfare uh as well i mean russia like i just don't like they they have you know a numerical advantage in terms of boots on the ground and i'm sure uh they're enjoying a numerical advantage in terms of their you know tanks uh, and armored vehicles like you know infantry fighting vehicles and things like that but no one has been able to assert uh supremacy in the sky uh russia's air defense systems are nothing to sneeze at but you know, neither of these countries, even even when Ukraine, uh, you know, even at the start of the war when we couldn't give them free stuff fast enough, they didn't have, uh, you know, supremacy in the air. I, you know, I don't know if that was by design or not, or, or if that's just something we don't we don't give that away. You know, um, it's it's by tradition. <laughs> sure, and you know, where do you see this? Like, kind of, like if you're, let's say you 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 know, Vladimir Zelensky calls you. And says, "Hey, Voodoo, uh, 
you know, I want you to fly to Ukraine. I want you to be my top guy, uh, you know, and just lay it on me. What do, what do I need to do uh, to salvage this? What's my best approach? I mean, what what are you going to tell him? So, I mean, if, if, if that was the call, I would tell him that he became popular and he got a lot of support because of his good PR skills. And it wasn't because of his military skills. Yeah, the, the, the wins of the first week of the war were great, um, but it was his ability to, to portray Ukraine as you know a, a beacon of democracy and, and liberty. And whether that's true or not, it's irrelevant. It's his ability to, to get people to buy that, that pitch. And, you know, we do the same thing in the United States. You know, you could argue that we aren't the beacon of democracy and freedom that we portray ourselves to be, but the portrayal is there. People around the world believe it. Um, but Zelensky has to be realistic about what, not only what his army is capable of in the field, but what help is coming to him and what that help can achieve him. Because I think the the appetite for supplying the Ukrainian army at the beginning of the war was was you know a lot greater than it is now. There was a lot of um, excess defense articles, there were things that could be given to the Ukrainians sort of free of a long-term cost in the United States. And, the United States is looking at this war in the lens of China. So if it gives an Abrams tank, an old Abrams tank to the Ukrainians, that's okay because the chances in the, the case studies of us using an Abrams tank against China is pretty low, right? That, that type of war that's going to be fought against China, if that war was ever fought, is a lot different than the one going on in Ukraine right now. You know, we can give all of our ATGMs, our anti-tank guided missiles, to the Ukrainians because we're probably not going to use those against China. But at a certain point, the return on that investment is lower, right? You don't, if you don't see victory, if you don't see wins coming out of your investment, people start to lose faith in your ability to do it. And you saw that all the way through, you know, the, the GWAT time, there were very few large wins and even though there were there were dozens and, and hundreds of smaller wins on the ground, those didn't translate into to good PR stories for the United States. And Ukraine is sort of in the same position. If it can't string together a, a good offensive that retakes a good part of that contested territory, the investment from the West is going to dry up. You know, Europe is going to run out of extra Gephardt anti-air vehicles that it's got and they're going to stop giving them stuff and at that point the ukraine is is out of cards to play and so Zelensky has to sort of beat that curve get ahead of that decision point and and as hard as this is to accept from a ukrainian perspective they've got to be realistic and offer a peace solution that's more than just give me all my land back. Because if you can't take it back, it's not your land. If you can't defend it, if you can't hold it, and if you can't take it back if someone takes it, it's not yours. And so at this point, you can say, okay, well, 
since 1990 this has been Ukraine and this should be Ukraine's but the the real world of, of war doesn't work like that it, it's not yours anymore it, now it belongs to the Russian army just like parts of Moldova belong to the Russian army or just like parts of Georgia belong to the Russian army this part of Ukraine now belongs to the Russian army and if the Ukrainians can't take it back it's just going to be part of Russia and Zelensky needs to buy back that goodwill and make it look like he's the one reasonable in the discussion offering peace solutions. And I think if if he can do that, if he can get the West and the media to believe that he is the one looking for a peaceful solution out of this, they can ratchet up that actual economic pressure that didn't exist in the way that I think the administration portrayed it at the beginning and exert actual economic pressure on Russia. And I, I would defer sort of any economics or any sort of money talk to my, my old friend Javier Goya because I'm not nearly the expert on this as some of those people are. But to use that pressure against the, the Russians to the detriment of Europe's interests and the United States' interests because we have a, a symbiotic relationship with Russian business and with Russian natural gas exports and all those things, you have to put yourself in the position of, I'm the one party here looking for a peaceful solution. And he's got to take the wins he's gotten, and he has to, to carve himself out some peace. You know, the, the, the other option, and if I was there advising him, I would say, hey, let's just grab a billion dollars and, and fly to Uganda and let's live out the rest of our lives rich in Africa. But I don't think he's going to do that. And to be honest, I think he's going to try to milk this for as long as he can. And in the end, he's going to run out of weapons and he's going to run out of support. And he's already started to alienate some people in the West by blaming this on us, saying we didn't give them enough weapons. We didn't give them this. We didn't give them that. And that doesn't that doesn't play well in the West. So I think we'll see what happens, but I don't think it's, it's looking good for him all that well. What about, uh, what about Russia? I mean, if, if Russia wanted to, uh, push, you know, if they wanted to go on offense again, if they wanted to get all the way to Kiev, what's, what's their, their ticket for that? I, I don't, I don't think they can. And I don't think they even want to, you know, and it's, it hurts us as people who look at the war and say, okay, this is what Putin wants to do, or this is what, you know, the Russians have in mind, because none of us know what, what's going on in Moscow. You know, none of us know inside their brains or inside what they're thinking, but all we can tell is what they're signaling. And they started the war with, we're going to denazify Ukraine and we're going to do this and, you know, whatever. And they had some pretty legitimate grievances against NATO and Ukraine becoming a member of NATO, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, NATO has started more offensive wars than the Russians have in the, the past two decades. And we wrap that up and, you know, we're, we're trying to peacekeep or we're trying to prevent, um, you know, ethnic cleansing or, or whatever it is we're trying to do. But the fact is we've bombed and invaded more places than the Russians have. And that is just the reality of it. And so Russia, like I said earlier, Russia loves its buffers, right? It wants a land buffer. Russia still has this 
this belief that space on the ground as a DMZ will save old Mother Russia from attack, right? And you see that's what they've done in Georgia, from North Ossetia and Abkhazia. They've done that, you know, a couple places, and they've created these, like, land buffers against NATO encroachment. And we might not see NATO encroachment as sinister, um, but Russia certainly does. And so if Russia holds what it has today, I think Putin sees that, if not as a win, at least as a draw. And so the desire to, to push further and take Kiev at this point is sort of beyond their capability, and I think it's beyond their desires, too. You know, it would have been easier if they had taken it at the beginning, and it would be easier if the Ukrainians just collapsed and, and fell apart, and they could take it now. But I don't think that they're going to pack up and go back on the offensive that so far in the war they haven't done a, a great job of yet. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean that makes sense. Um, there's, you know, you, you mentioned earlier the, the conflict, uh, being kind of like a, a test bed for, uh, Western military technologies and, uh, concepts. Uh, and, and I mean, I, that is probably true, right? I mean, I, I think, uh, in a, it's like a, a cynical, uh, thing to say, but it, it's almost kind of like we're, you know, like like we're at JRTC as like, uh, you know, observer controllers and just kind of seeing what works with with you know, uh, these guys who are not uh, not our countrymen, you know, um, and I definitely see some of that uh, from like the neocon right, like you you have uh, politicians who will just openly say, hey, look. Uh, for in terms of like money and and blood like this is a tremendous return on investment because we're depleting the russian army um, and it's not costing us any conventional uh you know folded flags of, of conventional forces um, and so this is if, if the doctrinally if you have the opportunity to bleed the russian military uh, at the expense of fiat currency instead of at the expense of uh, lives lost from american soldiers uh, you have to take that opportunity. Uh, you know, what do you think? Like, do you, do you think that that is uh, the real sentiment, like the real motivating factor behind this uh, from the administration? So it it definitely is a little bit. And the reason I say that is from my perspective and knowing or having worked with soldiers on both sides of this conflict, this war didn't have to happen. Like a, a lot of wars happen and sort of the countries move on this, this path towards them, but this war could have easily been avoided several ways and just nobody ever took the off ramp, right? Both sides just kept driving towards each other at full speed, screaming at the other to get off the track and, and nobody ever did it. Now we're here, right? And, I think this war has sort of shown us that Russia isn't the enemy that the Soviet Union was. And let's not forget that the Ukrainians were a huge part of the Soviet Union. Um, they fought the Soviet Union's wars all the way from the beginning. You know, once the Ukraine was rolled into the Soviet Union, 
you know, Ukrainian troops fought the Nazis. They fought in Afghanistan. They fought all over the world. But Russia, at least from the, the Pentagon's view, isn't the enemy that they're focused on. Um, they're focused squarely, and I think rightly, on China. And when we talked about the difference between, you know, unit capacity and, and general officer capacity, we know American companies and battalions and, and brigades are better than other armies. And we know that almost to a certainty. But what we don't know and what NATO tactics really fail to, to have explored is how good are we at a larger scale? You know, in the 80s and in the Cold War area, in the Cold War area, there was a thing called Reforger, you know, those exercises that they ran. But a lot of exercises now at a higher level have sort of a success bias where the, the general is not allowed to fail or the CJTF, the, the Command Joint Task Force, isn't allowed to fail. And there's some, some pretty interesting stories out there about, you know, exercise red teams just massacring, you know, in a, in a digital exercise or in a tabletop exercise, just, just crushing the American Blue Force and then the, the red team command staff getting fired for it. You know, the it's at some point in the military, you know, you expect an infantry platoon to fall on its face at, at National Training Center, at the Joint Readiness Training Center. You expect platoons and companies to, to fail, and they learn and they develop, but at some point of command, it stops being okay to fail, and now you just have the success bias. And so we don't know how bigger picture American military will function in a full spectrum war. And so I think what you're seeing is us learning lessons. And I, I really hope we're learning lessons. Um, I believe that there's enough people in the Department of Defense who are serious professionals who are, are looking at some of these things and saying, okay, how do, we're watching the Ukrainians and the Russians use drones. How do we do that better? You know, how do we go from, you know, one high school teacher flying a drone with a grenade on it that he bought off the shelf to, you know, a real drone swarm or a coordinated drone attack or, or anything, you know, how are we doing these things better? How are we developing this technology and making it better so that if a, a war for our survival did come up, we're prepared. And I don't, I don't know that we're doing that. I, I hope we're doing that. I'm far enough removed from the military that I can't tell you that's the case for certain. Um, but there are aspects of the United States Army and the United States military in general that aren't tested and aren't proven. And any information that we can gather and hopefully um, amalgamate into our defensive and offensive capabilities is, has to be more than what we had before. Yeah, I mean, largely, uh, it, it seems, in terms of the things that are not tested, I mean, it, uh, metal comes comes to mind. I mean, uh, killer instinct, fortitude, right? I mean, GWAT socially was not really um, a, like a change in lifestyle for anyone in America, right? Like, if, if you look at uh, the war in Ukraine, 
uh, of course, there's like, you know, TikTok videos of people in nightclubs in Kiev and stuff like that. Uh, and they say, oh, look, you know, they're just partying it up, uh, you know, whatever. I, I mean, things like this have, have always existed. There's always, you know, uh, nightclubs in the, the rear, right? Uh, but this is a big, you know, social disruption uh, to, to understate it for uh, many people in Ukraine. Uh, America hasn't had to deal with this since, uh, really since World War II too largely um you know vietnam maybe uh can be roped in with that uh, but most of gwat i mean if you didn't know someone in the military or if you were not in the military um it's entirely possible for young people to have just gone to college and started civilian careers without uh any of this stuff uh you know really touching them directly and it seems like everyone was fine with the war unless uh, like a, kind of unless you were killing people um, at which point it, it became like bad, right? Like some of the biggest uh, controversies that came out of GWAT were because, uh, you know, uh, U.S. service personnel killed people. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you remember uh, like I think it was like at the onset of the war, right? That, that the Marine like double tapped, uh, like a Hodge when he was he's passing the objective and CNN was there or something like that. And it, it turned into like, <laughs> you know, somehow like, like a, a Marine shooting a bad guy during a war was like, <laughs> you know, it was can't, like, can't be right. You can't do that. It, 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 they try to turn it into like the, the MLK assassination or something. And, and it's like, you know, you yeah. can't do this stuff, uh, without killing people and breaking their stuff. Like that's just the reality of it. Uh, like that acceptance seems to be like, like accepting that unfortunate concept, uh, seems to have been the X factor for why we walked away from Afghanistan with people falling out of the wheel wells of our, you know, transport aircraft, uh, instead of, you know, basically conquering the country, which, you know, historically yeah, in, in the military tradition is what would have happened. Yeah. And I mean, there used to be a thing called the, the punitive expedition, right? Where the, the British were, were great at this. The Americans tried it a couple of times. But if you were, if a great power was mad at a small power and the great power didn't want to invest a lot in, in occupying and maintaining that small power, it would just send a, you know, an overrolling force in, create a mess and then leave. And that sort of fell out of favor. Um, sort of when, when war became more of a societal and political, you know, search for justice. Like, we're going to fix this country by by invading it and Americanizing it. And, you know, inside every, you know, every good Vietnamese is an American trying to get out, right? Like, and that sort of ended that sort of strategic tool that large powers have had before. And you saw this to some extent in uh, um, the German airstrike, well, an American airstrike, but a, a German forward air controller uh, in 2009 by Sharadara um, in northern Afghanistan, uh, some some guys, some thieves maybe had stolen a, a, you know, a NATO fuel truck and taken it back to their village and parked it, and the, the German JTACs essentially called in a F-15 and, and dropped, you know, ordnance on the tankers and blew them up right in the middle of this little village and killed like 90 people. And yeah, it was dumb, 
and maybe it wasn't the best tactic, but the German defense minister ended up resigning, and it was a huge drama inside of the major NATO contributor um, in Afghanistan that almost just withdrew them out of the entire war. And it, it's 90 people, and that's that's a tragedy, but when you look at it in the, the scope of what Western armies have done in the past, 90 is like not even a reportable offense in the 19th century. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that might just not even make a letter home, right? Like, yeah, sure. I mean, the, and and that's like, um, you know, that's like that's like the NATO equivalent of getting fired for stopping a guy from looting a, a Walgreens. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's not, you know, that's something that. In terms of uh, you know, like like you mentioned, the, the DoD has its eyes on China. There's a lot of hawkish sentiment towards China. Um, you know, maybe there's uh, again, it's kind of you know, it's cynical. But if you can largely, uh, if you can hurt the Russian military, or at least uh, take some of the the wind out of its sails and reduce the perception of it um, before you have a war with a much bigger uh adversary in china um i, I suppose that on paper I, I could see how someone could game that out uh i mean it's coming at the expense of like millions of young guys dying in muddy fields with their legs blown off so i'm not i'm not advocating yeah. that approach but uh you know if you're just looking at it coldly i could see uh where that is you know for perhaps a, a, a thought that someone could could think yeah, and it, one thing it is doing is the Chinese conventional military, uh, its ground forces and its air forces, are really just like a like a wish.com version of the Russian equipment, right? And China's definitely got more, more troops, but all of their equipment is generally a mirror of the Russian stuff. And so it's giving the Chinese a pause and saying, okay, well, our equipment isn't as good maybe as we imagine it to be. Maybe we want to pump the brakes. And I'm not a, a big believer that a conventional attack from China is coming in the next few years. No. I know some people talk about 2027 and the, the population trend bathtub and all of those things, but the, the all out attack has never been China's method. It, it, if Russia is half an Eastern army, China is definitely 100% an Eastern army. It's going to try to infiltrate and sort of pull an opponent apart and, and create that societal rot before it just walks into what it wants and the people there just greet them as a stabilizing force. It's We look at it from a Western perspective because we look at it like, oh, well, you know, if I was China, Taiwan's right there, let's go get it. And that's not how China thinks. They're not like, okay, well, let's just hey little little right up the middle across the, the Taiwan Strait and, and do an amphibious invasion and watch them blow up everything we wanted to take. Like that's not what they're looking to do. They're more into a a deception, into an infiltration, a slow rot. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a fascinating time and international politics and international conflict have always been sort of a a more an impure moral version of, of domestic politics. It's one thing to say, 
yeah, taxes are too high, you know, we have our individual rights, this is how the society should function, but it's another to say, okay, well, what foreign country do we sacrifice to make ourselves stronger? Or who do we target to make weaker so we can get stronger based on that? And throughout American history, especially, there's always been a, an isolationist trend. And I think that that trend is morally correct, but I think it, it becomes a little impractical at times in a more connected world. And I think we're sort of seeing that conflict come up again, as has always come up since the Monroe Doctrine and things like that of, you know, we're going to keep ourselves as George Washington said, free of foreign entanglements. But, you know, just like weaponry has advanced since, you know, 1783, so has the world. And we'll see if that sort of goal that we have for ourselves can sustain itself in into the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. It's uh, remains to be seen. Stakes are high. Um, we'll have to do another episode about China because I have... Uh, yeah. <laughs> some, some yeah, I have a. I have some pretty strong feelings about China. Okay. <laughs> Let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, we'll have to get something on the books for that. I've kept you for an hour now, and I know you're you're coming home from work, so uh, I don't want to monopolize too much of your time. So, uh, where can people find uh, find your work, your threads, things like that? Yeah, I exist uh, solely on the internet. Um, I think my, my Twitter handle is at uh, 6 Voodoo. Uh, it's spelled exactly like it sounds. Um, I've written a, f a few pieces for I Am 1776. Um, that's I Am, not I Am. But that's a, a great publication that I'm really happy to have written for in the past. And I recommend if you want to read some more of my ramblings, check it out. But there's certainly some writers there who are are way better at this than, than than me i'm definitely the the ukraine to some of their 82nd airborne divisions trying to do this writing <laughs> thing um so yeah that's uh if you want to give me a follow go ahead if you don't that's on you um but that's that's basically it and uh don't don't come to me expecting a, a lot of open source intel stuff or a lot of deep analysis a, a lot of it's just jokes about my friend who used a hammer on his charging handle um, and used olive oil to try to break his, his rifle apart. So uh, a lot of that too. But that's where you can find me. And uh, I had a great time doing this, man. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, agreed, man. We will uh, have to get you back on. Everybody go follow Voodoo and uh, see everybody later. If you enjoyed this episode of the InBlock Press podcast, then please consider sharing it with a friend or becoming a subscriber. For more, visit inblockpress.com.